This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Now, after the initial weeks of the coronavirus global shutdown, we were able to set up remote interviews with many authors. Now, sound quality might be slightly different than our previous podcasts, but they still contain the same great content that you've come to expect. Today, our guest is Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Anne Applebaum. We spoke with her via Zoom in July of 2020 about her latest book, Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism by publisher Penguin Random House. Anne Applebaum is a writer for The Atlantic. She's also a senior fellow of international affairs and an Agora fellow in residence at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, where she co-directs LSE Arena, a program about disinformation and 21st century propaganda. In her new book, she uses her expertise in these areas and personal experience to explore the rise of fascist authoritarianism across the globe and explain how the political landscape's changes over time have allowed that to happen. A lot of the old political divides, the things that we used to be arguing about, you know, the size of the state, taxes, should we pay higher taxes or lower taxes, um, have really faded away and have been replaced by almost tribal warfare. You know, one group of society identifying as part of one set of values and another group identifying as belonging to a different set of values. Um, And politicians have made this worse in some cases by kind of messaging to their supporters, seeking to strengthen their political identity and to win elections, saying, you know, we need our group to beat their group. We'll learn about the negative effects of cultural tribalism on democracy, explore the ways some world leaders have exploited cultural despair, and hear how parts of Europe have handled the COVID pandemic compared to the United States. Anne Applebaum joins us from her home in Poland on this edition of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host this time, Brenda Madden. Anne Applebaum, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. How did you come to to settle in Poland? Your husband is is Polish and and very involved, obviously, in in Polish public life. Yeah, so I actually first came here um, in the very late 1980s as a journalist. Um, I was a freelance journalist. I was, you know, quite young. I wrote for the British magazine, The Economist, and for a couple of British newspapers, and eventually some American newspapers, too. I was what they call a stringer, so I wrote for lots of people. Um, I met my husband here, and um, he was also a journalist at that time, Um, but very slowly he got drawn into Polish politics, and he was, um, for a long time, actually, he was in Polish politics. He was the Polish foreign minister, he was the Polish defense minister, um, and now he's actually a member of the European Parliament from Poland. Um, But I've maintained connections in the U.S., which is where I'm from, and I live part of the time here, part of the time there. Um, We've actually been here since the pandemic started. Um, It's a Polish countryside, turns out to be a very, very nice place to be. Um, uh, You know, you can be outside as much as you want. Um, We have very, very low, um, you know, incidents of coronavirus here. So, um, so it's been very nice, but it is, it is a little odd and, and isolating, but we're very lucky. Yeah, I wondered about that. I mean, when you wrote this, it was pre-pandemic. 
And the world has sort of exploded once again into opposite sides in many countries on this, especially in the United States. And I wonder what it's been like in Poland. But as you said, it, it hasn't really been that. Poland got it very late. And so you didn't have this spreading in the community that you had in the U.S. and, and London um, before people knew that it was there. Um, and so they were able to lock down very quickly. And it's mostly, you know, it's in very low numbers here. And the other thing that's important about Poland, this is again maybe relevant to the book, is that the response to it hasn't been politicized. So once people were told you need to wear masks, everybody was like, oh, okay, we, then we wear masks. Um, and people did for a while. And actually, it's not mandatory anymore, although people still wear them in shops and on public transportation. You know, so far, the virus hasn't had that kind of divisive impact here that it's had. Um, um, in the U.S. I mean, there will be an economic impact and that's coming down the road and it's not clear yet what that'll look like here. But of course, you know, Poland is as plugged into the world economy as everywhere else and the crash everywhere will, will affect us. But, it, but the, the reaction to the virus was, um, was, was much lower key, I think, than in America. And the population density is so different too. And the population, well, out here it's very undense, but even in the cities, um, you know, one of the differences in, in a lot of European cities, there's a bar culture, you know, that people go out a lot, you know, in Milan, people go out every night, you know, and, um, you know, in Spain, when you meet somebody for the first time, you kiss them. I mean, it's a, that's just what you do. Um, and we don't have that here. It's a much more, I mean, social distancing is kind of normal here. I mean, we were joking with a Swedish friend of mine that like, the Swedes were like, what do you mean social distancing? That's how we always behave. You know, we keep 10 feet away from each other. And Poland is a little bit like that. And there, there's a, there, isn't, um, there isn't a culture of people hanging together and people are more separate. So I think that also these, these kind of cultural factors have, have an important role too. So the book is called The Twilight of Democracy. I'm going to read it because it's a longer title. I don't want to mess it up. The Failure of Politics and the Parting of Friends. And that last phrase is, is, uh, is, is very crucial because, as you said, this, this book begins and ends with social gatherings. Yes. Um, I should warn American watchers that, in fact, there are two subtitles. And the one that you just read is the one from the British edition, which isn't oh, bad. Okay there was an argument between the American and British publishers about what the subtitle would be, and they went with different ones. And the American subtitle is The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism, which is maybe slightly more sinister. But you're right. I mean, and the thing that the British publishers wanted to underline in that title, which is The Parting of Friends, is that there is a, the book is, the metaphor that I use at the beginning of the book is a party. Um, and it's a party that we had in this house um, in 1999, um, and we, I mean, it wasn't a very fancy or, you know, grand party. In fact, it was quite a scruffy party. You know, this is, there were no caterers or anything like that. But, um, but, but what was interesting in retrospect was that there were a lot of young journalists and some younger people involved, very kind of low level people in the government and, you know, people who we knew, some people from other countries, but mostly it was Polish. Um, and I reflected on this party 20 years after it took place. It was a millennium party, I should say, 1999. Um, I reflected on the party 20 years later and realized that not only am I no longer friendly with some of the people who were there, you know, we would all probably cross the street to avoid one another. And we are on opposite sides of a very deep political divide. Um, one, again, I mean, in this case, it will be familiar to Americans, um, you know, kind of two opposing political camps. And whereas in, in 1999, you know, all through the 1990s, we were on the same side. So, 
more or less, I would say that my friends at that time, we were anti-communists. We were happy that communism had fallen here. Um, people believed in free markets and liberal democracy and in a Poland that was part of Europe and part of the NATO and connected to the Western world. Um, and we all would have agreed about that um, at that time. We are now in, as I say, in different camps. And one of the camps um, has become, is, is now part of the, the kind of nationalist nativist ruling party, um, which has just um, managed to win um, the most recent presidential election here, just days ago, actually, using a very aggressively, they called it an anti-LGBT campaign. It was very aggressively anti-gay rights. Um, they've also, since taking power, since first winning a parliamentary election in 2015, this is a party that's pretty systematically sought to undermine democratic institutions here. So trying to pack the courts, trying to take over public media, um, trying to pressure the business community to be loyal to the government and so on. So changing the rules of democracy in order to make sure that they win and doing so while using this very aggressive um, both kind of homophobic and in some cases xenophobic um, language. And so, you know, the question is what happened to those people? Um, they were, you know, we all, I thought they were all in favor of liberal democracy or democracy 20 years ago. They aren't now. And what's what happened in between? And the book is a kind of long-winded attempt to explain that. And I, I talk about some very specific people, both in Poland, and then I talk about people in Britain and in Spain, and, and then finishing with a, with a section on the United States as well. But, um, you know, there isn't one answer, and it's not, a, it's not at all a political science book, and it doesn't come up with policy prescriptions. Um, and it's not about voters, by the way. It's not about, you know, why people vote for nationalists or why people vote for Donald Trump. It's not about that. It's about the people who, um, you know, who are part of these, uh, these radical movements, what has attracted them to political extremism? Why do they do it? What's, what role do they play? And so on. And as I said, because I happen to know some of them, um, the book focuses on them. One of the things that I've always wondered throughout as we've seen this happen in, in the United States too, is which comes first, the, the chicken or the egg? Which, who's influencing who? Is it the masses influencing that sort of establishment uh, leadership community, uh, the clerks as you refer to them, um, or, or is it the other way around? Did you, were you able to sort of, I know that's always sort of the mystery here is, is uh, who's speaking for whom, right? I, again, I mean, I, I'm, the, I'm not. I'm, I'm not attempting to investigate the, the psychology of, of voters in my book. Um, I'm interested in the psychology of these so-called elites or these, you know, spin doctors, journalists, you know, propagandists, depending on, on what you want to call them. Um, and you know, I mean, it, I think the answer is a little bit different from country to country. But I uncovered this a little bit in my chapter on Spain, where I found people who were deliberately trying to create, sort of seed, create, and mold a far-right movement that hadn't existed before, and they were trying to use social media in order to do it. So, um, you know, whatever the influence of, you know, however the influence goes, and I'm sure it goes both ways, I mean, I, I don't think you can doubt the fact that um, there are people who seek to use popular moods and seek to direct them in particular ways and seek to structure media, and, and now we have all these um, incredibly sophisticated tools to do messaging so that you can reach people using all different kinds of ideas and so on. Um, and so the, certainly it's the case that there are 
um, in each one of these, I mean, I, my book is about far right movements, but there are, you can, you know, you, there are far left movements you could tell the same story about. But, you know, in each case, there are people who have spent a lot of time thinking about how do we reach the people who would agree with us? How do we find them? How do we identify them? How do we appeal to things they're afraid of? Um, how do we make them angry? Um, how do we make them unite against a common enemy? And a lot of their messaging and language is designed to do that. So, um, you know, that, 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 you know, my answer is that, you know, although we can argue until the end, you know, until the end of this program about which comes first, as you say, I mean, certainly there is a group of people who are seeking to do that. They're seeking to create these kinds of tribal identities and to, and to attract the people, you know, find the people who would be attracted by extremist language. One of the things you lay out is, is that uh, the, the sort of ideology versus opportunism and, and how that plays out in things. And you sort of detail and sort of document how you saw that develop and, and play out um, in Poland, in Hungary, uh, in, in, in England, here. So there's always both. I mean, there are always people who are sincerely devoted to their cause, whether it's a good cause or a bad cause. Um, I think, you know, one of the concepts that I try and explain, and I show it from different facets in different countries, um, is a sense that I think is, you know, you've seen, you can see over time in a lot of countries where there's very rapid change and modernization, which is unquestionably true in our own society, um, is there is a sense of what I, what I called cultural despair. So there are people who become despairing of their country. You know, our country is degenerate or it's coming to an end or a certain kind of civilization that I love is gone or, you know, the England that I remember from my childhood doesn't exist anymore or the America that I remember or think I remember from the 1950s or the 1960s is gone. Um, and that feeling that, you know, that feeling of loss um, is one that a lot of these, you know, a lot of the thinkers, um, uh, you know, have in common. And I, I, I'm not doubting that it's a sincere feeling. I mean, it's not, it's not necessarily cynical. Um, on top of that, there are people who see that mood and, you know, and then seek to exploit it. Um, you know, how can we, how can we make people who feel some kind of loss, who feel that modernity is, is, is changing things too fast? How can we make them really angry about it? Um, and so there are also cynics and opportunists who, who seek to use public moods um, for their own purposes. I mean, and a lot of times it's just naked ambition. I mean, people leap on to political movements because they see that, it, you know, that's a path for themselves. I mean, there's a, I mean, and this is, you know, you know, this is true throughout time. I mean, when people, you know, when people see that there's a chance they can, um, they can, um, you know, they can attain something by attaching themselves to, to something, then, then they'll do it. I mean, it's a, a very old human characteristic. One of the things you talk about is the rhetoric of despair. The, the, well, the rhetoric of despair, the, the, you know, the language of disappointment, um, uh, you know, this is one of the things that, um, you know, you know that, that some authoritarian extremists, um, authoritarian-leaning politicians have sought to use to appeal to people. You know, you know, you're really upset about the way your country is going look, I can bring it back again, or I can, you know, this is what the made it make America great again slogan is meant to evoke. I mean, that's, that's what it is. We'll bring back some element of the past that you, that you feel is lost. Um, the slogan that worked in Britain during the Brexit campaign was take back control. You know, you feel you're losing control of, 
of your life. You know, things are, you know, too many things are happening too fast. You know, you're overwhelmed by the amount of information that you receive every day. Well, here, we're going to let you take back control and we're going to get back, you know, the England that we once had. I mean, so, and these slogans are, you know, it's, you know, they're not, they're not hiding anything. I mean, they're, they're directly designed to appeal to people who feel nostalgic, you know, for something that, that, is lost and, and and by the way I'm not denying that something was lost I mean when you have um, when you have political change um, and economic change and technological change and information change you know that means that something was left behind and for many people that's um, that's hard to accept you're right you point that out that, that there's often a grain of some sort of truth that gives root to these sort of movements um, absolutely absolutely yeah. right and it, it can get exploited or it can get you know, many, many things can happen, but it does begin with a, a genuine emotions and feelings uh, that then. Sometimes they're genuine, as I said, and then there are some cynics who exploit them or, or create them or try to gin them up or try to make people anxious about things that, you know, that, that aren't real. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's all kinds of, you know, you know, people have all kinds of motives. One of the things you point out is that many times the, uh, the leaders or, or politicians um, spouting this don't even really believe it themselves 100%. Some, some, some of them don't. I mean, probably the famous example of this, um, for those of you who know anything about British politics, is Boris Johnson, who, is a, who was the leader and the spokesman for the Brexit campaign in Great Britain. And this was the campaign to get Britain out of the European Union, which was very much a kind of xenophobic um, you know, anti-foreigner campaign. And this is somebody who all of his life was, I mean, he actually was, went to school in Brussels and had an American passport and he's a very international person. And when he was mayor of London, he was a great spokesman for the idea of London as this great cosmopolitan world city. Um, and he was someone who didn't believe that it was a good idea for Britain to leave the European Union. But um, when he saw that this movement, um, you know, this, this nostalgic movement was gaining traction, you know, he sort of leapt onto it um, in order to, um, you know, in order to exploit it in order to, you know, become prime minister, which in fact is what happened. So, um, so from his point of view, it was the right bet. You talk a lot too about identity politics, which has become such a focus here in the U.S., but, but obviously always in Europe too. Um, and the role that that plays in polarizing people. So identity politics is a word that means different things to different people. So I'll have to, you know, maybe, you know, you have to, you have to think about how you're using it. And, you know, in, 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 in my book, I've, I've talked a lot about, not so much about the arguments that people are having in the U.S. right now about, um, you know, what it means to belong to a particular race and, you know, and how, you know, are you identified solely with that race? But it's more about how, um, the, uh, how politicians have sought to create you know, political identities. Um, one of the things that's happened in politics in the, in the West in the last decade is that a lot of the old political divides, the, the things that we used to be arguing about, you know, the size of the state, taxes, should we pay higher taxes or lower taxes, um, have really faded away and have been replaced by these kind of um, almost tribal warfare, you know, um, you know, one group of society identifying, you know, as, as part of one set of values and another group identifying as belonging to a different set of values. Um, and politicians have made this worse in some cases by kind of messaging to their supporters, trying, seeking to strengthen their political identity and to win elections 
um, saying, you know, our, we, we need our group to beat their group. And our, you know, and this is a, um, and you know, the funny thing is, is that this, this can happen even in countries where there isn't any racial or ethnic divides. I mean, in the United States, you know, our, our national story is complicated by, you know, our multiracialism and our complicated history and so on. Poland is a country where, I don't know, people are 99% Catholic, maybe 99.5% Catholic, and everybody's Polish, and there's only one language. Um, and yet, you have here the same kind of very deep polarization, you know, where people are, feel themselves almost kind of tribally distinct from one another. You know, there's two political groupings, and they have a different set of values, and they demonize one another, and they, um, and, and elections are all about, you know, trying to, trying to, you know, bolster up your own group. Um, and it can even, you know, the, in the recent presidential election here, there was actually the, the, the opposition candidate tried to win by talking about unity and we are all one nation and, you know, reaching across the divide. Um, and it worked a little bit, but not enough. I mean, that isn't what people wanted to hear. People want to hear, you know, we need to beat the other team. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, once politics ceases to be about issues, you know, uh, um, and becomes about identity and which team you're on, um, then it becomes much harder to have democracy because, you know, democracy depends on, I mean, if you think about it, democracy is a very, it's almost a, you know, almost impossible idea. Democracy demands that um, if you win an election uh, and you're in charge of your country and your government, you nevertheless have to make it possible for your political enemies to win next time. So you have to keep the level playing field. You have to keep the neutral institutions. You have to keep an independent judiciary. You have to keep an independent media. And, and, and you know, you're not supposed to try and take those things over and have them be on your side. Um, and by the same token, if you lose an election, you're supposed to accept that and say, okay, we lost, but next time we're sure it'll be a fair contest so we can try again in four years or in five years or whatever the rules are. Um, actually, that's a very, um, it's counterintuitive. I mean, and so there are, we're, we're not, you know, particularly if, you know, if your political party believes that you are the true patriots and the other party are traitors, you know, then that means that when you win, what you're going to try and do is take over the institutions to make sure that the traitors can't ever win again, you know, or vice versa. Um, and, once you have those kinds of sentiments in democratic politics, then democracy does become much more difficult because democracy depends on the idea that we accept a level playing field. We accept that everybody has the right to be in politics. We accept that everybody is, you know, is a legitimate player. Um, we accept that the rules are fair. Um, and once people begin to question those things and doubt them, then it becomes you know, much harder for democracy to work. Ann Applebaum on the challenges of maintaining a functional democracy. In just a bit, we'll hear her thoughts on how people should view the threat of authoritarianism in the United States. There is no inevitability. It is not certain that America will survive either as a democracy or as a unified state or as a superpower. All those things can change. There's nothing inevitable about our politics. But neither is there an inevitable crash. There is no trajectory downwards from which we cannot escape either. There have been other moments in American history where we kind of regathered ourselves, reformed ourselves, you know, changed the way that things worked. We'll hear what she believes could be done to quell the rise of authoritarianism in the U.S. and learn about her thoughts on social media and political propaganda in the 21st century as our discussion continues with Ann Applebaum on Talking with Authors from HEC Media. 
Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. I know it's become sort of cliche and common to keep talking about the effect on social media, but but it seems like that influence grows larger and more negative with each development. Uh, and that even though we know that maybe what we see on, on social media platforms is not representative of everyone or that it does sort of make it easy for an extreme to seem like the common, it still influences as you have shown too, friendships, uh, your interactions with, with family members who you, you know, might never have discussed these things with, but yet now, you, you log on or you scroll and, and you see right in your face uh, what some of your closest so, friends so, might disagree with you on. And it, it, it's just, it it's becomes very toxic. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the important things to understand about social media, and this is particularly true of Facebook, actually, um, um, is that the, what Facebook algorithms do, um, you, know, what, you know, what determines what you see um, is you know, is what you're interested in. So, I mean, if you're interested in a particular kind of pop music or you like a kind of, I don't know, shampoo, you will then see more and more of that on Facebook or on YouTube, by the way, YouTube works the same way. Um, and so if you, if, you know, so if you begin to, if you're interested in animal rights, you will see more and more videos about, if you're, if you're on YouTube, more and more videos about animal rights. Um, and very often those um, that algorithm will lead you into being more and more isolated into whatever your view is or whatever your interest was. Um, and so you get people get drawn into much more extreme positions. They begin watching much more um, extreme material than they would have done um, in the past. Um, the other way the algorithms work is they kind of, they, they um, you know, they, they favorize emotion. So anger, hatred, fury, disgust, um, all of those things keep people online longer. Um, and what the algorithm is set up to do is to keep you online as long as possible. And so they are, they do have an effect of making people angrier, of making people more extreme, um, of making arguments, you know, m you know much more bitter. Um, and I think there's, a, there's another aspect to this that isn't always, not all of us are on Facebook all the time, you know, by any means, and let alone, I mean, Twitter, I think is an even smaller, you know, proportion of, of the population actually follow it. But they do have knock-on effects. Um, they have knock-on effects because journalists read them. Um, journalists follow, you know, this material themselves. Um, they have knock-on effects because, you know, you're talking to someone who has seen things on Facebook. In other words, even if you're not on it, even if you're not on social media, um, the political world, the journalistic world, and to some extent probably even your social world is shaped by people who are. Um, and so I think it, is, it, has a, it has a knock on effect. You know, the, the fact that these kinds of, these forms of communication are deeply divisive and, that, and more emotional than, than, than in the past, um, I think has had a big, huge impact on politics. Um, and of course the other, just to, to bring, me, bring back where we were before, the other big impact is that um, the, the, you know, social media has helped, uh, it's not the only factor, but it has helped undermine this kind of, shared public square. You know, there aren't that many places anymore in America where people with different views can have a civilized conversation together and debate issues in a civilized way. You know, everybody's off in their echo chambers 
you know, arguing or agreeing rather um, with, you know, with people who are inside their own tribe. Right. It drives the conversation and is actually a very cheap way for, uh, for a viewpoint to get out that you don't have to buy a political ad anymore. You can just start a controversy online. <laughs> sure. And, and, you know, and, and I mean, frankly, you know, what gets through, there's also a lot of noise out there. You know, the information sphere is very full and we all see much more information than ever before anybody did in history, you know, all the time, you know, constantly on our phones or on TV or, or, or around us. And one of the ways to break through the noise is by saying something extreme and, and therefore causing a reaction. Um, and people know that. And it's another, it's another reason why we have more extreme politics than we used to. You, as you said, this book wasn't meant to, to solve a problem. Um, and yet you've, you've analyzed it to the degree where, uh, what are possible solutions or what do you, or, or I guess a better way to say that is what can we learn from what you've discovered and laid out for us? What, what should leaders learn? Uh, where do we go from here? So, you know, I mean, my book, again, this is a very personal book and, you know, it ends with a kind of call for people to stay politically engaged and to, you know, if they've lost their old friends, find new ones. And, and by friends, I don't mean, I, I mean political allies, you know, because um, we're now in a stage where all kinds of political alliances are reforming. Um, you know, I think it's a moment where, you know, disappointed Republicans and disappointed Democrats could find each other and work together. So that's one of the, uh, that's, that's, that's where the book ends. But, you know, beyond that, I mean, I'm, I'm really hoping that, you know, over the next decade, we look seriously at, uh, much deeper reforms to our democracy, looking at our voting system, um, you, know, you know, looking at the way our party system works. Right now, both political parties get, you know, get hijacked during primaries by their most extreme and most devoted factions. Is that really the best way to choose the president? Is that how we want um, the leader of our country to be chosen? Um, I'm really hoping that, um, you know, it won't happen between now and November, but after the election that, um, we can begin talking about, you know, the, what we mean by a shared public sphere. Is there some way that we can recreate that? Is there some way to regulate social media, even to regulate or make transparent these algorithms? I'm not talking about censoring social media. I'm talking about making it, you know, making this, this um, you know, making it less extreme, making people less, um, uh, you, know, have, you know, just making people less angry. Um, and, you know, are there better ways in which we can find compromises? Are there, are there better ways that, that, that Congress could function? Um, you know, and there are all kinds of other issues, of course, money and politics, which is so distorting um, and, and, you know, as well. So, again, this isn't a book of prescriptions. And, you know, there are, you know, there, there are many people who are thinking a lot about how we can reform and refresh our democracy so that it, you know, works better um, over the next century. But, but, you know, this book is a really just a call to get people to wake up because one of the mistakes I think Americans make, um, certainly I made it, um, is to imagine that democracy is inevitable. You know, our system is the best of ever, all possible systems. It can never end. You know, you know, no one can challenge us. We're the greatest country in the world. Um, actually, democracies do end. Um, historically, they have all ended. <laughs> um, and without care and attention, um, our democracy could be in very serious danger. I mean, we, you know, I'm, I'm speaking in Poland now, and this is a democracy that's under threat. And um, we've seen other democracies end 
recently, um, you know, in, in Turkey and Hungary, um, uh, in Russia, uh, in the Philippines, you know, we see how they can decline. And, uh, you know, it is not impossible that American democracy could decline. And I'm hoping that people will wake up and stop it before that happens. As you mentioned earlier, democracy depends on opposition. It depends on there being varying viewpoints that have to sort of jockey to be heard and, 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 to, and to be represented. You don't address this in, in the book, but I found myself wondering as I was reading it, how has this shift toward authoritarianism in Europe and in the U.S., how has that affected the opposition party aspect of this? That's a term that doesn't get used in the U.S., but is, is very common, obviously, in Europe. Here, I guess, our opposition right now, of course, would be the Democratic Party. How are you seeing it affect the way they operate, the way they appeal or, or move forward in trying to reach their goals of, of, of representation. So, you know, so that's a hard question to answer outside the context of a particular country. I mean, who is the political the opposition is different. Sorry. You know, let I me mean, look in the U.S., um, uh, you know, the Democratic Party, I think, needs to do several things at once. I mean, it needs to both speak to its own supporters. Um, it needs to find ways to speak to Republicans. Um, it needs to have, I would say that it needs a ground game in every state and every community in the country. Um, I mean, and this is talking, this is not about beating the president. This is about, you know, as I said, recreating a sense of civic discourse and, and a sense of national unity. And it needs to, you know, it needs to make sure that it's not just talking to itself or, you know, the Democratic leaders aren't just speaking inside their own, you know, filter bubble and that they are also attempting to reach across and, and also seek to facilitate bipartisanship. I mean, but that's a long question. I mean, there, there's sort of, I think maybe there's two different questions here. One is the question of, you know, how to win the election, which is not what my book is about. And then there's a separate question of how to fix our democracy, how to recreate shared public sphere. Um, and in some ways those questions are related, in some ways they're a little bit different. The question I think I really have is, how does this affect their mode and their way of operating in terms of, it feels like as a result of this shift to authoritarianism, you see divisions developing within the opposition party here, which would be the Democratic Party. Would those divisions have happened naturally or is this shift or this uh, objection to say, Trump Republicanism, what is that doing to those parties that are trying to beat him? Uh, it, it feels like it's changing changing that dynamic as well for Democrats. So I think it's true that Trump's extremism um, and his appeals to, you know, racial symbols like the Confederate flag, racist symbols rather, like the Confederate flag, um, his, the extremism of his language, um, the, his use of Twitter, um, I think it has inflamed people and has made people even angrier on the other side than they, they might have been otherwise. You know, for people who were already convinced that America was a deeply damaged place and that American racial conflict can't be resolved and that America needs radical change, you know, I, th I think Trump has given them credibility. I mean, by, um, by being the kind of caricature racist that he sometimes is. Um, 
And I think that has definitely inflamed and divided the left as well. And what I'm hoping is that the left remembers that it needs to also speak to Republicans and it also needs to speak to independent voters. And it also needs to speak to people who voted for Trump, but who are disappointed by him. So we don't have the left also spiraling off into, you know, arguments about what kind of language you are and aren't allowed to use. Uh, as you said earlier, we began this, uh, the, the book begins with a gathering and ends with a gathering, and it feels um, like you're ending on a hopeful note or cautiously optimistic note. Is that, that's the impression I got as the reader. Was that the intention and, and how and why did you feel that was important? So the book, right? the book ends, with, the book ends with another party and with, you know, different friends. <laughs> um, the book ends with a kind of call for engagement and the sense of radical possibility you know, what happens next is up to us. In other words, there is no inevitability. It is not certain that America will survive either as a democracy or as a unified state or as a superpower. You know, all those things can change. You know, there's nothing inevitable about our politics, but neither is there an inevitable crash. We have no cause either for to be radically optimistic or radically pessimistic. You know, there is no there is no trajectory downwards from which we cannot escape either. Um, you know, there have been other moments in American history where we've kind of regathered ourselves, um, reformed ourselves, you know, changed the way that things worked. Um, and it may be that we have to do that again. And the book says, you know, let's, let's, let's start thinking about doing that. This is going to seem like a really basic question, but I, I always enjoy hearing what an, what an author says. Uh, at the end of the day, why did you write this book? Oh, this book I wrote in order to explain this to myself. I mean, you know, this was a, you know, as I said, this book was about why did, you know, what happened to my friends? Did they change? Did I change? What happened to them? And it was a, you know, it began with me following some of their careers and in some cases trying to talk to them. Sometimes I did it successfully, sometimes not, you know, trying to interview them or else talk to people who know them. Um, and it started out as my own project for myself. I just wanted to understand it. Um, and so the book is, a, is, a, is my attempt to understand how, you know, a part of the right, which is what we were, kind of the center right, the anti-communist right, how it split and why, why some people went one direction and some went the other. Um, and it's a, it was a, you know, it was, a, it was my personal desire to find out. I felt that as a reader, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to ask you that, is because it was very clear that for all of the, the talk about politics and divisions, um, it, at the end of the day, it, it is personal. It is the most fundamental thing that affects our lives. I mean, look, you know, we can all go on pretending that history doesn't affect us, that we, you know, politics don't bother us, you know, we're not interested, we are, we're doing our jobs, we're living our lives, we're having our families. But, you know, sometimes it's almost as if history kind of reaches down and grabs you and says, sorry, no, you're not allowed to go on living your life this way because we're going to set your country in a different direction. Um, you know, and at those moments when that begins to happen, um, it's very important that people wake up, pay attention to it, and begin to participate, because otherwise you can suddenly find that something you thought was just as normal as, you know, running water or tap water, you know, um, something like democracy can, be, can disappear. Ann Applebaum, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. That's Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Ann Applebaum, as we spoke with her in July of 2020 about her latest book, Twilight of Democracy. The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism by publisher Penguin Random House. 
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking with Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host and producer of the video version of this program was Brenda Madden. The editor was Greg Kopp. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. HEC's media executive director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. This episode's podcast producer and editor was Paul Langdon. And I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam. Special thanks to the St. Louis County Library and Left Bank Books. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media.